Welcome back to the Petronerds podcast. Um, you'll notice there's something a little different about today's setting, and that's uh, Ethan is not here today, but Robert Norton is. We've actually talked about Robert Norton on the podcast, so he hasn't heard that because he hasn't listened to episode five because episode five is not out yet. But um, so in our previous podcast, Ethan and I talked about bringing Robert on, and he was gonna like he was gonna ref while we like duked it out. So. We'll just have to duke it out without a ref now. Yeah, exactly. No, I, uh, so for those of you who don't watch my podcast on Digital Wildcatters, I do the roundup with Colin and uh, Trisha was kind enough to host me while Ethan's out of town. He's like in Costa Rica or somewhere yeah, like that. Yeah, he's enjoying nice sun while we were all dealing with frigid temperatures. Yeah, so uh, I don't have his voice, but uh, I hope I can make up for it in what I know. And so Robert is, so he's a perfect stand because he is also actually a midstream expert and you should listen to the Roundup podcast because it's awesome. But one thing you'll notice if you listen to it is that Robert Cooley wants to talk more than Colin lets him um, on issues. So this is a chance for us to banter and bullshit quite a bit and go through everything. But before we get into it, and there's a lot to get into because today is February 22nd, 2021. And if you recall, there was a huge storm in Texas and actually across the US. So lots of things happen and we're going to talk about the weather and pipelines and everything and oil prices, you name it, we'll get into it. But before we do that, uh, the Digital Wildcatters are hosting a conference called Evolve. And this is a digital, well, I guess this is a what do you call this? A virtual event? Virtual event. Yep. A virtual event. And it's interactive <laughs> and everything. It's the next evolution of oil and gas. Um, they want to thank Technic FMC um, for being the headline sponsor. And um, I've never really done this on promoting stuff, but okay. Major speakers are Toby Rice, CEO of EQT, Dan Pickering, uh, and Alan Gl Gilmer, and uh, of Inveris, and David Ramson Wood, and Chuck Gates. Um, they didn't put in here, but I will also be speaking and I'll be going down actually this week and talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline with Law IQ. So um, it's going to be awesome. I think the boys have done a really good job in putting this together and super pumped about it. For sure. Should be good. Awesome. Got, had to get rescheduled because of that storm. Yes, it did actually so. kick down a little. So, okay, we're just going to get into it. All right. So the big storm, big weather. Yep. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, what are your thoughts on the major just from a pipeline perspective? Uh, what are you feeling? Let's get into it. Yeah, I think kind of have to take a step back and think how all the different systems broke down, and uh, you know I, I think depending on what you're reading out there, uh, there's blame to go around everywhere. Um, I think the, the the big piece of it though was that you know a lot of the the guys in the media and gals in the media. Are, um, are you know are blaming natural gas, and while yes there were hydrates and yes gathering systems were freezing up and might not be designed for these temperatures, um, you know gas wasn't getting to market for a handful of reasons. One, um, when you're ha when you have a major production operation, you've got all sorts of power supply at the wellhead, and that wellhead gas has to get to the gas plant yep. before it can get to the power plant yep. before it can get to your switch. Yep. And not just that, you know, the gas is also going and sometimes bypassing power plants to go into LDCs, the local distribution companies, so that that natural gas can come into your house mm -hmm. and that has first priority. So the power plants were also starved out. And so what I think, you know, was happening is it took a while for everyone to figure out why the system was breaking down. And once ERCOT got power back on the grid to the areas where the production mm -hmm. was coming from, then the gas started to come back yep. online and things started to improve. Because there's a huge, I mean, if you listen to, there's actually, I think it was a, 
a there's a recent podcast I listened to. I think it was it was Platts actually, and they talk about the production in the field and and uh, Vicky Hall Vicky Hall mentions it as well in uh, this conference that was uh, in Riyadh this week or last week on Wednesday and just talks about all the wells. Basically, they had no power in the field, That's right. so they just shut everything. I mean, it was it was forced to being shut in. My initial reaction growing up around pump jacks was that my first because my pipes actually froze here and I was dealing with that all weekend. So I hadn't paid attention as much as I should have to what was happening within Texas. And then I'm texting with Chuck Yates and he's telling me that there's these rolling blackouts. And I realized I didn't know what was going on and started studying up on it. And my first reaction was, you know, I grew up around in Wyoming and in Colorado. We don't have the same issues with shut-in production because, and I was talking to my dad and he was like, yeah, it's, you know, you literally have more insulation. You have equipment is is built differently. And you typically actually, if you got a high or something from Texas, it was sent back because it wasn't going to work in the field. Right. So I think there's some of that as well as no power into the field and then, and just incredibly cold temperatures. And when you have water, that's a, it's a massive problem. That's um, right. So all those for, I think, the field situation is partly why that was shut in. And I believe that was, I think Bloomberg said that was 21 BCF a day that we lost. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I saw that number too. And, you know, when you think about it, like you, you mentioned, you know, Wyoming, Colorado, Bakken's the same way. When you're building these facilities, all the major equipment has buildings around them for the most part. Yep. You know, it, it does two things in Weld County. You know, you have the the noise reduction, yep. but you've also got everything that's insulated. So your aiming building, your compressor building, yep. you know, your some of your bigger skids are gonna be inside. And in, in Texas, all that's exposed. And so when you when you take a plant offline and then you bring it back online, then you've got all sorts of other issues because you haven't had gas running through the pipes. And if it's not dehyde gas, there could be a lot of water in the pipes causing hydrates. I mean, you know, typically on the tailgate, the residue stream is going to have about seven pounds of water per million. And so you can, on the residue gas pipelines, that's, that's pretty dry. That's not going to freeze up, but coming into the front end of the plant, you know, the, the water cut could be higher. Yep. Um, and then if, you know, if you've got any gap in production, it's just hard to get everything back up. You've got methanol that you're dumping in pipes. You know, you're trying to get these hydrates out. You're and when you start dumping a ton of methanol in pipes, you can knock the speck off of the natural gas liquids so they won't be able to go into long haul pipes. So you've just got this kind of domino effect of all these things that happen when you take things down for a minute. And, you know, I think that, you know, ERCOT and, and, and you know, other, other power providers, power pools are going to be able to see what happened and in the future, hopefully be able to keep these fields online and keep them online as a priority. But I think it's the, it, I think of like the deep water horizon and any major event that happens, like any major catastrophe, it's never one thing, you know, people always have like the Swiss cheese model and everything lining up. It's like usually a confluence of events that come together to have this. So you had incredibly low temperatures, yep. which do happen roughly once every 10 years. And, and I don't think this is the podcast to argue the merits of, of how many of those will be coming in the next few years, but Regardless, uh, you know, that's you're having these one in 10 year occurrences. This is a lot of people have talked about this as sort of a once in 100 year event in terms of how how severe it was, but extremely cold temperatures that you don't have in Texas. So normally that you don't have and you have to think about just your daily life. It, you know, you typically don't have your equipment for this because you don't need it. You have pipelines that are some pipelines above ground. You have some right. pipelines. You know, the difference between North Dakota and, and Wyoming, where I'm from, and, and Colorado is you bury pipelines much, uh, usually a little bit deeper. It's harder to do stuff. You you have a winter period, which you can't actually like pipe and do stuff. So in, in Texas, it's like year round everything. So it's just a, it's a completely different 
set of circumstances. And even where I grew up, you know, old stripper wells, even if you had an old little building, a crappy tin building, it's a building. It means that you can like get in there, you can work, your pumper can get in there in the winter right. at 40 below and, and work on stuff. You typically just don't have shut-ins even at, you know, sub-freezing temperatures. So it's not just, I think there's a lot of the stuff on the equipment side, and then it's that you had demand. So demand for power so high. So it was heating, right? Everybody's super cold. You want to heat your home. So demand's ramping up and it, it was higher than they had anticipated at the highest peak. That's right. Um, yeah. It and was that, like 3,000 megawatts higher than their worst case scenario. Exactly. So, and well, I mean, we could argue whether or not they would have been prepared for that worst case scenario that they had planned for, and probably not given all the series of events that sort of came together to put this, to make this happen. But when you have that pull on demand and that, that high, because, and you don't typically have it because people don't need to heat their homes like that, it just doesn't. It doesn't sort of work. So then that's when they started. Basically, they couldn't provide it. And so they started the rolling blackouts to, I guess the, the explanation was they didn't want the whole system to break. So they had to do it. But what ended up having was 7 million people without power. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. And then, you know, it, it broke down across all the, the energy streams. So um, South Texas Nuclear had 1,280 megawatts go on, offline for almost a day. Um, you had, you know, storage, coal storage piles that were freezing up. The wind turbines were frozen. The solar yeah, PV your panels coal was were... literally frozen, like frozen to the ground. And then the wind and so so if you break out the energy stuff, which EIA does great, you can see power by source by hour, and you can pull up Texas, which is basically you know everybody's talking about the media, but it's essentially its own grid. You know, Texas is by itself ERCOT, and the power actually they have more natural gas and actually more renewables than almost every other sector in the entire country. So if you look at the Northeast, it's still predominantly coal. If you look at the Rockies, we're still predominantly coal, and we have renewables in the mix of it. But they have um, natural gas, and it wasn't just renewables that went off. Certainly, the solar was covered with snow and the wind turbines were not equipped. And actually, I listened to um, the CEO of Vesta's last night about midnight on Bloomberg. And when he was asked the question directly from them, uh, he was asked or it was maybe it was Sunday. Night, he was asked directly, what is your um, what are you going to do about preventing this in the future? He avoided it completely and he did not answer it. And he just basically said, we we are equipped to sort of handle this stuff. And obviously those wind turbines were not equipped for it. And that's probably an easy fix. Just like this is stuff you can fix stuff in the oil field. So I just don't, they obviously weren't equipped for it or they wouldn't have completely froze up. And we have wind turbines in, in Wyoming that don't freeze up. Sure. So it, there's, there's clearly a solution to it. Yeah. I think, you know, I spent some time in wind and when you have wind that is coming online higher than the turbines are equipped for, they shut them down. And so what I would probably imagine is there was gonna be too much wind shear, so they shut all the turbines down when this front was moving in, and then they weren't able to get them going again because they were covered in snow and ice. Okay. So that's typically what happens is if it gets too windy, they don't work, yep. which is kind of funny. That is really turbine. interesting. But and your gels and lubricants and stuff and everything. I mean, just I think about it when you have a diesel truck in North Dakota and it doesn't start when it's 40 below and it's gelled up, you know, yeah. like this is the same thing in any, if you're at a power plant, anything, it's valves, everything is just frozen and not working. So yeah. it's, it's coming together to just be a shit storm. Yeah. No, I mean, it's also like you think about your airplane when you're taking off, you got to de-ice those blades, those blades, yep. you know, can't have anything on there or else the friction's off and the blades won't spin. And yep. so it's a similar thing. So it's just kind of this big effect. I mean, the inside of those towers, you know, they might've frozen up too. Yeah. Um, but you know, generally it was the, it was the blades and the rotors being locked that prevented them from going And And at one point in time, you know, they only had 300 megawatts of solar PV that was actually operating on ERCOT's grid, which is a small, small fraction of what is typical. So, yep. 
um, just, I mean, again, it was just like a system wide breakdown and, um, not, not good. No. So. And I, I don't think it does the industry any favors to blame solar and wind. Cause it certainly wasn't their fault either. It was, it was everything, but it wasn't, you know, I think a Bloomberg and Bloomberg needs to be called out on this because they, you know, their email that they put out that like night was basically blaming, directly blaming the industry for causing climate change, therefore causing this. And I think that's not very helpful to the folks in Texas who didn't have power. And then I heard actually North Dakota, North Dakota was without power and not because they, not because they didn't have power, the weather problems, because they started rolling blackouts to send power down. Yep. So people are like sending their kids to school without power. And I mean, they will shut in production and stuff if, if the weather preemptively and stuff as well is too bad. But I had like, we, I didn't lose power. I didn't realize they were doing that in North Dakota. Yeah. They're probably sending that to Washington, Oregon, I believe. I, I don't know about that. But you know, what I, what I did find interesting with ERCOT in particular is that if you're a power generator, you're not actually obligated to be generating power. And so as these prices spiked because of the lack of supply, some of these guys were making decisions on intentionally not running their equipment. Uh, and okay. that's a problem. And so, um, you know, I think that, you know, there's been a, there's been a bill that's been proposed, uh, that would run the, uh, would help natural gas fall under the defense production act and keep it, you know, as a generating source. Um, but I think what you saw is these guys saw, um, prices as high as, you know, 900, a uh, uh, thousand, a million. Yeah. 1200, BTU, I heard 1200 yeah. BTU, yep. million BTU. And I mean, if you're thinking about how much it takes to power a big hundred megawatt, you know, simple cycle turbine or a small peaker or something like that. I mean, that's millions of dollars an hour that are going out the door and, yep. you know, it's falling on the rate payers and, um, you know, that they're going to have to pass back these costs. And, uh, you know, I saw that Atmos had, uh, you know, bigger liability and they had cash on hand. I think you're going to see a lot of the different utilities that are a little bit upside down. So, I mean, I think the federal government's going to have to step in and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a mess because the, be the bills, mess. people are really angry about the $3,000 bills that they're seeing. And I, I mean, to be honest, I would be pretty angry too, if I didn't have power and now I have frozen pipes and then I get a $3,000 bill. I mean, that's not something that anyone can afford. Like that's, that's pretty ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, you kind of got it across I'm looking at our little agenda here. Um, we'll just touch on it now, but you know, you've got different States that have got, you know, different policies and, and they've all called different emergencies in. And so Gretchen Whitmer, the, um, the governor of Michigan, Glad we pivoted there. That's good. This is a good one. It yeah. is right, and that's her name, right? It's Gretchen Whitmer. I'm pretty sure. I think that's it. That's correct. Um, yep. I don't want to say it wrong. No, it's it's Wh Whitmer is correct. Okay, Whitmer, Governor Whitmer. Um, you know, so she she basically put in a state of emergency in uh, in Michigan um, because of the propane squeeze. And what's funny about this one for me is that Governor Whitmer has also been the one that's been championing the Enbridge Life Line Five shutdown which is where more than 50% of Michigan's propane comes from. And 60, it's 60. So that Enbridge line five is actually 65% of uh, Michigan and then, and the upper peninsula. So it's the majority of propane that that whole area gets. If that was to be shut down, all of that propane would be trucked in. And for folks that don't, if you didn't grow up in rural America, if you don't know, like how, you know, my house, this, this house in Denver is gas lined. I have the biggest, uh, I have the biggest meter that Excel makes because I have a gas fire pit outside, a gas fire inside, and I use it all the time. And it actually, we'll get into the the energy content of that next to coal in just a second. But 
propane is, um, I mean, growing up in the country, you have bottles of propane, a truck comes out and fills your tank of propane. And that is what's, you know, that's what's actually heating your home and everything. In that way, is this, in a lot of sense, these people, there is a little bit more grid reliability because they're not completely reliant. You know, if our electricity went out when I was a kid, we still had heat, that's you right. know, we could still run our stove and we also had a wood stove because it does get really cold in the winter. So it's just a little different in terms of how people are functioning. And I do believe that if you have, um, I think, I know some people lost power for various reasons in Denver, but I mean, I don't lose my, I've lost power here and I still have my natural gas fireplace that I turn on and yep. I can stay warm. Same, same in my house too. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny you, you mentioned it, but, but I mean, you know, part of this, the climate movement has been to shut down pipelines and this is where they're getting their, their power from. It's coming pretty efficiently. If they shut down line five, then they're going to have to, again, truck or rail all this propane in, which is much more carbon intensive than Enbridge's line five pipeline yep. is. And so, you know, I hope that, you know, folks like Governor Whitmer kind of see this happening and start to change their tune a little bit. And um, that's a, it's just over 500,000 barrels a day. And that's that line five. I had to look it up because I didn't know exactly what, because I didn't realize that was also taking NGLs, but that's crude and NGLs. So that's their mainline system that's coming down. It's an existing pipeline and they have done maintenance. So they've been working to actually, I believe, tunnel underneath there yep. um, to, it, to basically get around any issues that could happen with this older pipeline. And I think Whitmer actually just wanted to shut it down. And the problem with shutting down existing pipelines without, it would wreak havoc on not just Michigan, but Midwest refineries. I mean, it would be a the disaster. The entire supply chain. The yeah. entire supply chain. And um, not to mention the upstream side in, uh, in Canada, but also severely in North Dakota. I mean, it would just have massive ramifications. And there really, um, there really is not a legal precedent as we've actually seen with Dapple to empty, you know, empty a pipeline. Although the DAPL, we can just side note, I don't know, the February 9th, they did a, I think Army Corps of Engineers put it like, they did a delay, right? Yep. And that was because they were supposed to come out and say something, but now the um, the new administration, there two people have left Army Corps of Engineers. They were, as with the Trump administration, leaving two people just left. Now they've got two new people, and I believe they said they wanted to pause for like a briefing. It does not look good for DAPL, given this. It's not looking good at all. And that... That is, um, I think if that happens, it puts more of a risk on the ability for a precedent to do something with line five. Yeah. Just so. going to put more crude and gas liquids on rail and truck on truck and fueled by diesel. So it's insane. Yeah. So I think, um, I think we can move on from, <laughs> from the weather, which is always a great way to start. Oh, we should say that there was a, I don't think a great article written in, in the Denver post on, um, where And it talked about where does your electricity come from? And I have to say this story real quick. That's because I grew up where we literally went to, I mean, by third grade, you went to on a field trip and you had to like, you went to the power plant and you went to the coal mine. And so literally when we turned our lights on, we knew where the power came from. Yep. And that was just a way of life. You know, every, most of the people did work outside of Craig, Colorado. Most people either worked in the coal mining or they worked in oil and gas. And my grandfather was a wheat farmer, hence the, the wheat behind you. So very commodities driven. Uh, a very commodities-driven area, but it the people actually know where that stuff comes from. So it's a big deal for them when, you know, Excel is shutting down the Hayden Power Plant right. and these are shutting down jobs and everything. And, and they understand that, that coal is going out, but it's a it's like it's adapting to this sort of change in way of life. And it doesn't, um, I can't say these people understand it when they see lack of grid reliability and then we're pulling power plants off. Yep. Um, so it gets, I, I'm not, there's, 
there's going to be issues, I think, with the populace yeah. appreciating, you know, especially if their electricity bills go up. Yep. They've shut down Hayden. There were four units at Craig. I think there's three now. Yep. Two of them have scrubbers on the back of them. I think they were going to talk about adding another one, but it's so cost prohibitive. Yep. Are you going to add another $200 million scrubber, you know, yeah. like it, or do you just shut it down? And yep. so, you know, for Excel, they're probably going to re be replacing that, you know, or that's tri-state, but I think Excel has a, you know, interest in one of the units, yep. but you know, they're going to be replacing this stuff with renewables. And here we go seeing what well, what happened down here. And it's a, a megawatt of this is not a megawatt of that. And, no, and it's the renewables is fine. Like, I, th I think people can understand, or even if that was natural gas and renewables, it's a combo. I think yep. it's that if people are seeing, you know, if all that becomes all renewables and you reduce that grid reliability. And I think I'm not convinced that it's... Like Duke Energy is one of the bigger um, suppliers in on in the Northeast, and I was listening to some of their earnings call. But they came out after the earnings call, and they had said they were. There's a Bloomberg article that they were mulling ideas to actually increase natural gas capacity, which is something I've thought about a lot because when they depreciate, when these companies depreciate their coal assets, we foot the bill for it. Right. Um, and I don't know if utility companies will like hearing that, but that's the reality. They depreciate it and the rate increase goes to us and we pay for it. So why not, if you're trying to increase reliability and you're trying to decrease emissions, why wouldn't you increase your consumption of natural gas in the near term? And you know, if you really have to hit those you know, emissions targets, you know, 2050 of net zero, whatever, you'd pull them offline early and depreciate the assets. And that's literally Duke Energy said they're mulling that idea. And I thought it's, it is literally the only way you are going to be able to decrease emissions in the near term. Cause in Colorado, this, um, this house and most of the electric grid is about a third coal. Yep. So if you are, have a Tesla or you have an electric vehicle and you're plugging it in and feeling really good, you just need to know that about a third of that's coming from coal. And I think about 20% of that's coming from natural gas. And your natural gas is about three times higher energy content than your coal. So when I'm burning my fireplace and I do it every night and every morning, I actually, it's more efficient than if I was turning on my, my heat. Uh, heat. Yep. And in a 200 year old house, it doesn't actually work, which is why. So Colorado, Denver has said they're going to turn off natural gas in new builds. And this really does drive me really crazy because I think uh, I would freeze to death in this house without my fireplace. Like it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense for me why they're going to, they're going to pull natural gas. And I don't even know how they're going to do it in practice because unless your grid doesn't have natural gas, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I think that the idea is that all new buildings, uh, commercial buildings and residential buildings in the future, I know commercial is where they're really focused right now, will not have natural gas hookups. They'll yes. all be electrical. And so, you know, I don't know how you take buildings offline and replace their entire heating systems. Um, may, may, you know, that probably takes some time, but uh, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, who's one of the big uh, industry advocates and um, what would you call them? A lobby, lobbying? Group? Yeah, a, tra a trade association. Trade association. Yeah. Um, you know, they've, they've par uh, partnered up with the, like Western Natural Resources or... Um, Western Energy Alliance. Western Energy Alliance. Thank you. I don't have all my notes in front of me. I'm trying to do this from my mind. Um, yeah, but they've uh, they've lobbied the the city of Denver to to reconsider. And so you know you've seen this in other cities. You've you've seen San Francisco try and electrify everything and limit new gas hookups. This is a different climate. Than and Palo Alto, Palo Alto even had rejection. Like, have you, if you've been to Palo Alto, it's ridiculously fancy, lots of money. I mean, just go hang out there for a little bit. I don't know if they've since done this, but when they first thought of doing this in Palo Alto, they had massive rejection. It's at a minimum, and I'm sure it's way more now, to change a home, like it's at a minimum 10 grand to change all the appliances and everything in it. Yep. That's each home. It, it's trillions of dollars you're talking about to electrify these homes. And you're talking about the, again, pull, go to EIA and pull up the energy by pa like power by hour, and you can see it on the grids 
Texas has the most renewables and the most natural gas. Mm -hmm. Like everywhere else is predominantly coal. And so if you are electrifying, you're you're burning more coal and you are increasing your emissions. And that's just that's just a fact of life. Yep. So that's that's what it is. And I mean, there's not much way around. And we're de we're declining production in Colorado already from intensive regulations in the U.S. by oil and natural gas production. So I don't know where I'm, I'm not sure exactly where Excel stands on this, but I personally think that if you if you if they want to decrease their emissions and they want to they want that grid reliability, that they should lean in a little more to natural gas. Yeah, it's replacing the coal gas is the lowest hanging fruit. Yes. And I think also that that's kind of the I mean, when you start looking and I study the global oil market, as you know, and, and get into the weeds on the micro stuff, but I really think natural gas is it. I think this is the. The, uh, like a huge pivot point and it's going to be a pain in the ass for this administration because yep. they're going to have to come to there's going to have to be a reckoning point where they realize how important natural gas is and how important low stable prices are and production and when they're going after the oil industry as hard as they are uh, with all their uh, moratoriums and and with the with their climate change executive orders it's going to impact natural gas production and that is in turn going to impact prices and energy security. No doubt. And so that probably leads us into our next one, which we'll talk about. So um, is is New Mexico and, and Biden's federal lands, um, you know, executive order for a 60 day moratorium on federal lands. And so you know, I, I don't even think that a lot of people in the, uh, you know, in the community really realize that a lot of the natural gas from the United States comes from associated gas from drilling from oil. Yes. And so you talk about energy security with gas, you start you know, limiting the ability to go drill for oil, you're limiting the ability for gas, for power supply, all of that. And so um, the New Mexico, what was it, the energy minister sent a, a letter into the Biden administration? Yeah, it was the, so the, I did it, I just gave a presentation last week with my old, uh, my old boss that with the Energy Policy Research Foundation. And we, it was like, they did a first, it was a first working group series on energy security. And I gave a quick presentation and I just pointed out like New Mexico's production. And I think it's it's about a million barrels a day of production from the Permian Basin and about seven BDCF a day gas. It's a decent amount of gas. And I mean, in, in some ways, if that declines, it'll help like the system and everything. But the Permian Basin produces 17, over 17 BCF a day of gas. It's a huge amount. So when we think about you know, pre-COVID, what the US is producing roughly 100 MCF a day gas. Mm -hmm. It's a massive amount of uh, gas production. Obviously, the, the more, uh, the most in the entire world that we're producing, and the but a mass amount is associated, and a lot of that does come from from federal land. But the the New Mexico basically New Mexico sent a letter to the acting Secretary of Interior, and this is the Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department, and so. You know, they kind of commend them for the efforts that they've made on climate, you know, the stuff they're doing on climate. And then they sort of lay into them. This is not nearly as stern as the Ute uh, letter yes. that's just basically saying you're, you took away our sovereignty. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's which was true. It's very it was very true. Um, and when you listen to our podcast, it's yeah, we rip into that pretty hard. But this is pretty good because it does say basically that they explain that uh is they're already seeing an impact of gas or of rigs actually leaving the state. And so when you look at the Permian rig count and you're following on Baker Hughes, you're not you're not going to see that. You have to actually look at the data and you can pull, you know, I do rig heat maps and I look at the rigs and I, I look at it by county and I look at the permits by county. And you are seeing a couple companies who have, you know, they have the same rig number, but they've moved their rigs out and they've just decided to take a pause on drilling in New Mexico till everything's figured out. And ConocoPhillips mentioned it in the earnings call that they think, and I mentioned this on the last podcast, but they think this is no big deal, essentially, that this is going to be 60 days and they're going to be back at it. It doesn't feel like that's the case at all, because this letter is explaining that they actually have, they're actually having issues laying pipe and they're actually having issues 
preventing flaring on these wells. And that's highly problematic when, I mean, so they're explaining that on existing wells, this is not new permits. This is not, you know, trying a permit that they, you know, is kind of in the middle and maybe it was approved on the January 20th when everyone went through. These are actually wells. And it's because that order that we've referenced in detail, that order number 3395 was a suspension of delegated authority. And so it prevents and was intentional because it was forcing the hand of a lot of folks to push through Biden's, the people that he wanted to get through his cabinet. Right. And so it's hamstringing these guys' ability to, so they're increased emissions by not, by prevent, or basically these wells have to flare because they can't get everything put together. And so the state is just writing this letter explaining that they want this stuff clarified and they need this done in an orderly fashion so they can get back to business. And they're saying that because they have federal land and Texas doesn't, that they're being unfairly impacted. So I highly encourage you to find the letter and look at it. It's it's pretty serious, and I think that New Mexico is a is a democratic state. Um, and Deb Holland comes from New Mexico, and I do not know if it's certain if she's going to make it now. Yeah, she's got a tough road. Yeah, because for, for confirmation. Because there is one Democrat that's beginning to push back, and yep. one is all it takes that's actually right. that in this because it's completely split. I never thought I would have a podcast talking this much about politics, but I swear this administration is just going to give us crap tons of stuff to go through all the time because it's going to be really super fun. And then the the uh, the oil or sorry, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is the BLM of the ocean, they also rescinded a lease sale, which we knew was coming, uh, but that was just another kind of like you know, nail in the coffin. If you think that everything's going to be fine in the Gulf of Mexico, it's not. So expect production to decline in the Gulf of Mexico. I know. And it doesn't have to be political either. This can just be about energy advocacy and making sure that your electricity bills and your power bills and what you pay at the pump is as cheap as possible. And for every one of these regulations that we're continuing to put on and all the production we take offline, that's going to impact prices on the high end. Um, you know, we're going to see underinvestment in the long run. That's going to cost consumers. This, and, this gets great into the oil prices. And because yep. um, if you've, I haven't fueled up yet because everyone, I talked about this in the podcast too, is I have this F-150 in the garage and I never drive. That's actually, the plates are expired. So I haven't been driving in a while and haven't been to the DMV. But I believe when I have to fuel up, it's going to feel a lot more painful than it did uh, when I fueled up a couple months ago. And I don't know what you drove over here, but you've got to be, everybody's feeling at the pump right now. Yeah. I just drove up, for, uh, drove up to the mountains for a quick day trip and, uh, it was 40 cents more expensive today than it was a week and a half ago. Yeah. And that's, that's fast and rapid. And people keep saying, I've talked on this podcast a lot that, and that we, this isn't, it is not intended to be political. This is, we're talking about oil prices and energy and, and uh, the economics of it. And I've always studied like production and economics. And when you usually talk about it, no offense, but it, the, the facts, usually the numbers usually speak for themselves. So um, and somebody does have to cover hydrocarbons because nobody else is. So that's, that's why we do it. But the oil prices itself are, I mean, the question is, are they getting too hot too fast? And I have never been, I've been more bullish on oil prices than most from March of last year. I always thought that they were, you know, was very accurate and like they're moving to 40. We're going to end the year, you know, pushing 50. And it did that. But now that we're pushing, you know, we're pushing north of 60 and this storm took off in addition to that 21 BCF a day, it took a th about 3 million barrels a day offline. So that has helped propel this. And it might be a little bit of a catalyst for traders to be going a little bit crazy. And I always think there's like, potentially two to five bucks of froth, you know, on trading upside or downside. But this just seems like it could be getting ahead of itself. We have our OPEC meeting coming up. I know this because March 5th is my birthday and it, that's what's, it you know, all fell apart exactly. last year, man. Uh, it was my birthday. <laughs> I was like, Oh, 
It's going to be easy to remember that. <laughs> that. Boulevard completely. And it actually happened like on a Saturday. So if you're watching. It was, yeah, it was, I got the news walking to get some coffee on a Sunday morning. I'm yep. like, what happened last night? Yeah, crazy. And so that's what's amazing. So the International Energy Forum, they have a meeting in Riyadh every year. And this actually took place on Wednesday. And so the Saudi oil minister spoke at this meeting. And that... Uh, it's important because so he speaks at this meeting and he opens up with some remarks. I don't know if you followed much that's been happening in, in this space, but the Biden administration is refusing to talk to the um, Mohammed bin Salman, which is a, the effective de facto ruler um, of Saudi Arabia. So he's refusing to talk to the crown prince and only talking to um, the king when nobody's even paid attention. And to be fair, Mohammed bin Salman is a, um, a force to be reckoned with. He's a completely autocratic dictator, you know, but he's also he's our age and yeah. he's um a little bit older, he's super cocky, he's headstrong, and he does not like to be told no or not spoken with. Or doesn't like dissenters either. <laughs> yes, yes, very, very true. Um, so, I mean, for somebody just not, for Biden to not be speaking with him, it's a pretty big deal. And so um, you'll notice the similar name because the Saudi oil minister is the same name, um, Bin Salman. Uh, and so he makes some comments at this IEF meeting and they were very, you know, he, he urged caution and he urged, he really, he pushed the market not to be to be very very cautious um and to not uh not predict the unpredictable i think were his words and so that was kind of interesting to say okay we're in the lead up into this meeting and we do these monthly meetings and we're coordinating and we did this massive cut before but hey don't don't try to predict the unpredictable with opec plus and i think it was kind of like hey if you think you're gonna like push us don't push too hard the problem is that the saudis and the russians i think don't view the market the same way. And I, I don't think anybody in mainstream media picks this up at all, but I think the reasons that they think about oil prices getting too hot is something that the Russians don't want at all. They And and I believe most people in Saudi Arabia and probably the, the prince himself recognizes that this could pull peak demand forward. Mm -hmm. And so we saw issues. I mean, last time we've seen prices get, you know, pushing like this was, I mean, this happened earlier last year, but Goldman Sachs has called for $72 a barrel. Other other companies were calling for 82 before a year end or, or by summer. It, it won't stay there, folks. It can't like it broke down. We saw this in the late fall summer of 2018 where prices broke. You WTI broke 76. Brent broke 86. And that was the highest dollar amount in rupee terms. So it was the highest that Indians had ever paid in India for oil. And that includes like when it was $146 a barrel and it demand was not supported at those price levels. And I sure as hell don't think, you know, getting out of COVID demand is going to be supported at these levels. Yeah, I don't think so either. And OPEC has 8 million barrels a day just sitting there that can be turned back on at any given time. And that's that's a pretty significant amount of oil that you could flood the market with and reduce prices again. And, you know, I think that, you know, when you look at Europe, when you look at the United States, when you look at parts of Asia, Japan specifically, um, we've printed so much money. Oh my gosh. This that is so glad we're pivoting this direction. Because this is, yeah, it's. We've printed so much money that the only way to get out of it, out of this massive amount of debt is through inflation. And they're going, I mean, you're seeing inflation already crop up in the marketplace and building supplies and crops, other commodities. You're starting to get it in oil. Like I think if it's copper, so it's every so commodities. If you just if you guys turn on the market and just listen to a few days, all you're gonna hear is it's the reflation trade, it's inflation. And it's huge because it actually does impact the economy. And the administration is pulling it down, and Powell and Yellen um are, you know, 
they played it down today and basically said, I think everybody's saying that jobs or the administration is saying that jobs are more important than inflation right now. And they're saying it's, they're not going to have inflation. We already have it. We're already seeing it's here. It. Yeah. And the we've staved it off in large part in years past because of we had we had we had the perfect Phillips curve. Um, and he, Rob actually has a. a Oh, economist background as well. So he knows what I'm talking about. But if you have low, it's like what Switzerland had, low inflation and low unemployment. And actually it was, you know, actually the end of the Obama administration and all of the Trump administration, we happen to have those things. And now, I mean, everybody's saying, well, I think the Fed wants to keep, Powell wants to keep interest rates low and he, his hand's already being forced. I mean, people, I think you could maybe even see a tick up slightly before year end in interest rates because we're seeing the 10-year treasuries, 20 or 30 year are all are all moving up. Yep. And that's not good when they're moving up and the Fed is not doing it. Your Fed is supposed to technically like signal and you're supposed to be signaling and then those kind of move with it. And that's the opposite. They're basically saying we're going to let the economy heat up because we want jobs. And the problem is econ economics is not a perfect system. You can't let some sectors heat up and others not. And so this $1.9 dollar stimulus package, the problem with it is that it isn't really targeted. And th this is, you know, the I, Bloomberg and all these other entities saying this, it is not a very targeted bill. And so it goes to a lot of different entities. And that's what's making a lot of people concerned about this uh, reflationary, inflationary stuff is that it's going everywhere. And if it was really targeted to the sectors that really needed it, it would probably be a lot less. It would be a lot less. Yeah. And so in this, as you've noted in your, which was great in some of your podcasts with Colin, is that like these super, you know, you have super low interest rates, you have money flooding into the, the SPACs are just drive me absolutely insane because the money's just going crazy into them. Yep. And the fact that, you know, uh, Elon Musk has said a few things that I don't completely disagree with, but I mean, the fact that he can invest in Bitcoin and run Bitcoin up and then he can say, oh, maybe it's getting a little too hot. And then it slides back down and that the market like this is OK. This is Bananaville, you know. Yeah. This is just not, this is not normal stuff yeah, anymore. He did it with his own stock. He's doing it with Bitcoin, which is equating to his own stock. Exactly. I mean, he's done it with Dogcoin or Dogecoin. Yeah, Doge, yeah. is, how do you say it? Dogecoin? Do, I think it's Dogecoin. Dogecoin. I don't know, Nini. <laughs> uh, probably should have. But, you know, did it with GameStop. I mean, it's just everything in the market is hot. And, yep. you know, I think that the, the biggest commodity that I've read about that's, that's gone Bananaville has been, um, has been lumber. And so you think yes. about- you think yeah. about new home construction and, and some of the things that we need for, a, you know, a growing population or to get things back, you know, get the kickstart the economy on maybe more of a blue collar level. You know, traditionally that's been home ownership, home buying, et cetera. Now, are you going to be able to buy a house? Like all the existing real estate is already inflated up. We see it here in Denver. Oh, Denver. This is, this is insane. My neighbors were just telling me like what, I mean, that what they're looking at. It's like, it's like a million basic like base in Denver right now. Yep. And it's crap. I'm sorry. It's just, it's yeah. ridiculous. But now, I mean, you go even a little further out and the, the, the economic decision isn't that much greater if you're, you know, if, if it costs 20, 30% more to, to build a new house. Yep. And so there's just a lot of these things happening in the background that I think that, you know, everyone needs to be a little cautious of and keeping an eye on. I'll try and bring it back to oil because this is Petro nerds after all. Oh, it's, it's fine. I don't mind <laughs> the econ. Well, and also like, so that, that inflationary piece, but I do believe that oil is a big component of yep. this because I think that when people were waiting, so if you listen to people talk about inflation, it's oil prices were always low, so they were never concerned about it. And so we didn't have it in the previous years. We just didn't have it because we've averaged 53 WTI for five years pre-COVID and that's kept a lid on it largely. But when you have in tandem, you have copper prices going up and you've got 
it does help that when one commodity is going up and everything's pulling it, and there is this, the way money's being spent, the way you have low interest rates and the green frenzy. And this is really real in terms of everything driving up commodities and, and rare earth minerals and the mining and everything that's going to go on for, um, that's going to have to go on to meet these battery requirements and these battery needs or these so-called needs that hasn't. And again, this is all happening without clear directives. So we have some like very broad executive orders, which I, every podcast I say, print them out and read them, go to the, go to the website and actually look at the, read the actual executive orders on climate change. They're so big and so broad. And so this is all sort of between the stimulus package and this. And I do believe that the stimulus package, there is a lot of stuff in it, right? So it's not just, uh, it, there's it, the reason there's concerns about it. And I think they call it pork. Yes, it's called pork. Thank you. So a lot of stuff in it, and it's kind of fueling this inflation in addition to these oil prices. But I think the problem is, is that that this all could turn uh, the wrong direction. And I think they want to create jobs, um, and that makes sense, right? They they want to push for the job side and sort of deal with inflation later. But what may end up happening is we could hurt the job side, and then we have inflation and high oil prices, and still have you know the sticky unemployment, and that's going to be really tricky. That is going to be really tricky. Yeah. So. So, and, and energy prices will be a, a factor in that. And the jobs thing is huge because I mean, this I just have to say, this industry has lost tens of thousands of jobs and is expected to lose tens of thousands more. So if you're talking about jobs, this is, uh, it was the, the article that um, I, and I put this on LinkedIn, but there's an article that The Economist did on basically just a, a very clear article on what the Biden administration has done in terms of, uh, it has like pump jacks on an image and then attack, the Biden administration's going after climate change. And very clearly says that oil and gas production in the US is 1% of US emissions. So it, I don't think it's unfair to say that the oil and gas industry is being unfairly penalized and attacked for and from an emission standpoint, if that's what this is about, indeed about, if it's only 1% of US emissions. Yep. So it doesn't, and essentially if you elect, they explain that if you electrify everything tomorrow, so if our grid was 100% electrified tomorrow and all the cars on the road were, every single one of them was electric, that you would still have half of the emissions in the US would still be there that we would have to deal with. So that's in itself, and the grid is a big component of this whole, of these, these climate change agenda and everything. And so it's being bucketed together as let, let's greenify the grid and let's go after oil production. And those things are not the same. Like. Yep. We're not using, well, we're not using oil production in, in, at least here in Colorado. There's a little bit of oil production still used in the Northeast for, for power that I just realized, but not a whole lot. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to, uh, we'll bring back this uh, too hot, too fast thing. So that's, you know, again, back to, to, back to OPEC being able to flood the market. OPEC can flood the market, bring several more million barrels a day online. Um, even in a higher commodity price environment, it's harder and harder to finance oil and gas projects today. So yes. we're going to ultimately wind up losing market share back to OPEC and reducing our national security by being more reliant in the future on, you know, future imports if we're hamstringing ourselves. So, um, again, not, not to be political, but I think that as, as everyone that listens to this thinks about this kind of stuff, you know, it's just really important to be knowledgeable so that you can have these conversations or mail your senator or mail your representative and, you know, talk about some of the concerns and, and, and how this all is, is woven together because we really are, you know, we, we got to a point as a nation where we're very much independent of the decisions of a lot of different, uh, foreign powers yeah. in OPEC and, and, and to kind of seed that back away and, you know, increase rel reliance on China and their rare earths for our electric batteries. And, 
It's just a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. Well, it's the numbers are. Re- it doesn't mean that you, you don't have to be anti-renewables by any means. I mean, I do think they work. You know, they work extremely well together, and we can Very beef well. up. You know, the green side, and you can beef up. You know, wind and solar, and really increase your resiliency and reliability. But I think something really key to point out is that, and I put these grid, you know, these power things in my energy security presentation just to point out is that. It's the the storm kind of catalyzed this sort of the reliability and redundancy. And this happens in, you know, when you think about pipelines in oil and gas, when you take one pipeline out of the system, you know, technically, do you have enough pipelines in North Dakota without Dakota access? Yeah, but, you know, you reduce this redundancy, you reduce this ability, you know, you don't get to the markets that you need to. So it doesn't completely work. And the same goes for power, is that when you start pulling pieces out, you reduce that resiliency. And something really interesting, actually, from this IEF meeting um, and gets back to this, this energy security. And I think, you know, we drop production from 13 million barrels per day in the U.S. We're at 11 million barrels per day. We're still technically a net exporter, I think, with product, yep. but we're we're losing we're we're losing that a little bit. And we did impact the global. We've impacted the global global oil prices because we had so much crude there, and that means that our flexibility in the Middle East, our flexibility in geopolitics has just been there. And now we actually have, I think we, our Asian allies are starting to get a little bit concerned about our gas supplies and, you know, that sort of redundancy. They know technically we have plenty of gas, but are they going to be able to access it? And at at what price are they going to be able to access it? But something to point out is that, so BP has had these forecasts and I've I've ripped on them pretty hard in, in previous podcasts, but BP has these very lofty forecasts, which now Shell and Total and all of them have similar ones of basically peak demand has already peaked and, you know, that we're sort of have peak demand and it's declining. And but Spencer Dale, who's the chief economist, who I, I do know personally, and he's a former Bank of England guy. He um, explains in a couple he explained in a podcast with Jason Bordoff of Columbia University, and he explained at this Riyadh meeting last week that these forecasts are not what they're going to be wrong and they're not how they actually see the world playing out. Well, we're going to wrap this up, but I think that there was a couple things that I was pointing out from this, from this Riyadh meeting and Spencer Dale, the chief economist of BP and some of his comments. And so he walks people through and explains to them this, you know, this peak demand scenario and everything and these other scenarios and basically the world that they have to work in and live within. But he explains that, uh, he essentially explains when they're asking him in Q and A, about needing to invest in crude oil. And, you know, there's there's stuff that basically Shell, BP, and Total, all of them are explaining that they have to invest in, or they have to produce um, oil and natural gas to actually fund their renewable expansion projects. To actually go green, they have to fund it. And yep. Total actually says we need to be black and green. And that's it's a little bit different from what other folks are saying. So BP, when he's when Spencer Dale's asked about this potentially shortfall of investment in oil and gas, he explains that that is something that Wall Street does not understand. Is that, And I think personally that he needs to be spending more time explaining, or not necessarily him as the chief economist, but the investor relations folks at all these major oil companies need to be spending more time in New York explaining to these Wall Street analysts that if you don't invest in oil and gas, you're going to have a shortfall of, of you're going to have a shortfall of supply and we have to. So the IEF Riyadh meeting, basically you have every, you know, International Energy Forum, you have the International Energy Agency, you have um, all the oil ministers and they're, they're giving their outlooks and essentially explaining that you have to, we are going to have a shortfall of investment if you don't start, if these companies don't do some basic investment. And that's highly problematic because the same Boston Consulting Group said the same thing. Jamie Webster is a friend of mine and he was talking about this as well, is that you have to invest in this. And yet the market is completely dislocated because it's not favoring any oil and gas investment. It's not favoring oil companies all, regardless of how green they are. And while I've never been a big proponent of 
shortfalls of investment because I, I think the industry is, is very innovative and t tends to lower those costs. And as you pointed out, we have a massive amount of crude oil sitting on the sidelines. So, but the reality is that in the in the long term, you know, five, 10 years out, you still have to basically, you have to be spending money and maintaining fields. Yes, you do. You see it coming offline in the North Sea, you know, yep. you see because the EU doesn't want to touch a lot of it yep. and the EU banks don't want to touch a lot of it. You're seeing it now come offline in the Gulf of Mexico because of some administration changes or maybe not come offline, but just a lack of future investment. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, you know, we've had three offshore drillers just emerge from bankruptcy, Diamond, Noble and one other one that I can't think of right now. Um, you know, so it's just. The, you know, a lot of these projects that aren't shale are long-term 10 to 20, 30 year projects. I mean, Canadian oil sands, 25 year projects, the, yep. the, not in situ, but the actually open pit mining. And, um, you know, it's going to favor companies like that, that have these long-term projects if supply continues to erode from the marketplace. And, and you're right. Like, you know, we, we said that, you know, OPEX got a lot on the sidelines, but that, that tap is only going to be open for so long. And this is a long-term problem. And, you know, we aren't going to be able to replace 100% of the internal combustion engines in the United States by 2030 or 2035 or whatever. No, and you're, you may not be able to There's even. 1.5 billion ICE cars in the, in the entire world. So yeah, and it's the a, these guys are, so when you listen, that's what these economists will tell you. So that's what these people from Boston Consulting Group and, and BP will tell you. But see, I think they're afraid to talk about it as much. I mean, in this in this forum in Riyadh, of course, they're talking about it. But I think they need to get, you know, the, the world has to get comfortable with realizing that it, you cannot get off of fossil fuels tomorrow. Um, and that you can't, even if you force, which in, in America, we don't, we have a democracy and I don't think you're just going to be able to force all of this upon everyone. Um, to just immediately change overnight. So I'm not just not sure it's going to be completely. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that people are going to have to learn the lesson the hard way when they're paying for it with their pocketbook um, versus the media blitz and ESG frenzy that you kind of see going on. Um, that is part of this messaging and part of the reason it, it you know, it feels like BP's running scared. Um, they've been on defense since deep water mm -hmm. and um, they haven't been able to go out there and do some strategic things like Chevron has, right? I mean, Chevron's kind of really positioned themselves. They took a run at Oxy. It didn't work out, but then they ended were up with a billion dollar windfall with a billion yeah. dollar windfall and an investment in Noble that looks yep. really smart now. And, um, you know, BP's, BP's been going the other way. Total's been going yep. the other way and their earnings reflect it, right? Like you kind of see it in their stock price. Yep. You see it in their returns. You see it in their and you hear it in their tone. And yes, and sure. I think, I mean, we we talked about a ton in the last podcast of B, the difference between like BP and Chevron completely night and day. And I was actually encouraging, encouraging listeners to really, if you do want to understand a lot in the renewable space, to listen to a lot of these earnings calls because they are making real efforts to do it. And I think the bet on natural gas is, it's it is where the market's going. It's strong, but they seem conflicted now between the ESG push and the movement, between how far they're going to ramp that up. And I am just not convinced that they are going to make money in renewables. the the way that The way that the market is characterizing it, and the frenzy, and the spec drive, and everything, I just feel like they feel like it's going to be more. And it's no dis it's not dissimilar from shale and how people thought you're going to get thirty percent rate of returns yeah. and those didn't materialize. You know? Yeah. And I think, you know, I've covered it on my podcast with Colin, but you know, the, the reason that a lot of these renewable projects work is because the cost of debt and the cost of yep. capital is so cheap. So you can go execute on these like six to 9% return projects when it doesn't cost you that much money to go get them executed where in oil and gas, the cost of capital is higher. Just BP's operating structure in general 
costs more than a renewables company does. And so- And their access to cap, that's the whole point is their access to capital. So one of these things that, the, that's why Wall Street has to get this is that, you know, you're going to have, the world is going to have a shortfall of oil if these companies can't access capital. I don't necessarily think there's going to be such a shortfall of investment, but I do think that there has to be a reality that you still have to fund fossil fuel companies. Yep. Uh, and there has to be a balance of that. And that the frenzy of ESG and the fact that you and I could, I'd say, Ethan and I, any we could start us back tomorrow with a green name and say we're starting a battery company and probably get money. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think the reason that you kind of see the the um, the swings and what the WTI price forecast is is because that you know I, I think that there's probably going to be a limit and a ceiling on how many rigs can actually get deployed with future capital, right? Like there's yeah. still a handful of private equity backed companies that have dry powder from the, you know, 2017, 2018, 2016 vintage, um, you know, that weren't ever able to exit. And, you know, some of the, the majors are, are still, you know, deploying capital, but in general, you know, that money is going to run out and that next raise is going to be harder. Yep. And, and that is whether that happens in 2021 or 2022 or 2023, the U.S. production is, is going to have a hard time growing if we can't access money to go drill and complete future wells. And this is probably a good point where we can sort of conclude, but I think that that one, we're going to have earnings calls. We, Continental came, has come out and Devon's come out, but we haven't seen, you know, I look for like Pioneer Natural Resources and EOG to and release Diamondback, it yeah. and Diamondback to see like who's moving the needle and what they're doing and and how they're you know spending their money and you know and Diamondback saying for every one penny that they save it's you know like a million dollars in free cash flow and that's the stuff I'm listening for and want to hear are they going to be moving the needle and how much of that free cash flow are they going to put back into production that we'll have to watch that I think from as I've said with Ethan I think from a technical standpoint the Permian and the U.S. actually has a lot of running room left but I think this this side of the money side is going to be really important. Yep. And I know we've talked a lot about, you know, both renewables and, and oil and gas on here. And I think that the biggest opportunity is to integrate renewables into oil and gas and to integrate microgrids and distributed generation. And, and if you do that, Microgrid certainly would have helped out in this uh, in this power situation if you would have had your own power. If you have a power island that's supplied by your own natural gas and you know some solar, you know some PV panels. Who knows if the if you would have if you yeah we don't know if that would have actually technically worked in this weather, but yeah. In, I mean it's 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 a better chance than re you know relying on your line drop and you know a lot of the midstream facilities you know they can take the residue gas coming off the tailgate of the plant and power a turbine that gives you electricity um, across your entire facility. And, and at the wellhead, you know, again, you still have the issue with, uh, like we talked about earlier with the, with the wellheads receiving power. But if you ran that power back out to, to your field, you know, it, it could be something that people need to start considering. And I, I think that, you know, some of the, I say some, I, I think a lot of the smarter folks on the PE side, I know, you know, Double Eagle's been looking at some renewable projects and there's a handful of guys that are starting to think forward. And, and so it really is an opportunity to, to integrate that into but they're our, not doing it for operations. They're doing it because it could make an intelligent investment decision That's as right. opposed to a virtue signaling or as opposed to, hey, we're hitting this target on our ESG because we think it's going to keep us in a portfolio managers long only. A hundred percent. If I can reduce, reduce my lease operating expenses by having integrated renewables and lower power costs than the power supplier for the area is going to do, why wouldn't I want to do that? Yeah. And so that's... That's where I would encourage everyone that is watching this that, you know, works at an oil and gas company, you know, 
present those kind of ideas into your employer and, and, and help try, try and drive it that way because, you know, there's a smart way to do this too. Yeah. And I think this gets back to just the whole idea of driving costs lower. The industry has to be extremely innovative and very intelligent, drive these costs as low as humanly possible and use every technology above board yep. uh, to do that. Cool. So with that, I think we should conclude. And I really want to thank you, Robert, for being uh, the first guest host we've had on the Petroners podcast. So this has been awesome. Thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah, um, great. And we will um, we'll definitely let Ethan, you know, ref and we can duke it out a little more and just have some fun on the next one. That sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Trisha. Bye.